Humility is our greatest need. We have tremendous need of humility. Awe is God's greatest gift to the church. And those two things are, are very much connected. We receive the humility that we so desperately need by the awe that God so graciously gives of himself. As we gather, and it is a bit of a novelty for us in these last few months to be able to gather. Some of you are gathering for the very first time. Some of you are are still thinking about gathering, and I don't think it's much of an overstatement to say that we are facing challenges. Indeed, we will face challenges. And people are asking questions about gathering. Will I gather? (laughs) Am I safe gathering? What will it look like when we gather? What if, what if I come back and things aren't the same from when we used to gather? And will, what if people sitting around me don't believe exactly the same things that I believe about the current virus situation that we're living in now? So I am mindful, as we're all, I'm, I hope, mindful, that we need much wisdom. But we don't need a greater abundance of wisdom, rather we need a more deliberate submission to the wisdom that we already have. And so, turning our thoughts and our eyes towards Ephesians chapter 4, where the wisdom that Paul gives here is a wisdom that makes a connection between an experience that we have in our fellowship with one another and the experience in God himself. To see that Paul quickly moves from speaking about and and talking about what they need in their midst, which is humility and, and kindness and meekness and peace, and he quickly moves then to talk about God and his and his oneness. And the two are connected, vitally connected. And all through the scriptures, you'll find that it's impossible for God's people, for them to think about being God's people without thinking about God. Do you think about God? And it's impossible for us to be the people of God without experiencing God. That's the wisdom that is so manifestly evident in Paul's word to the church in Ephesians, the experience of the God who is one, which is a profound revelation of something that is beyond our comprehension. And our awe of such oneness is what humbles us and makes a way for us to live in unity with one another because we are one. We are one in our awe of a God who is one. But I hope you can see the connection between our our desperate need for humility and embracing and experiencing the gracious gift that God gives to us, which is gathering him to himself, calling us to gather into the presence of the one and only God who is one, that gathered into his presence we would experience the awe of the God who is one. And it would indeed humble us. And in that humility, we would find the wisdom to possess oneness and unity with one another. So here's the main point I would like to to get across again. 
that humility, which we have such a great need of, humility in the church is the fruit of awe in the church. Unity in the Bible. Those are very deliberate words. Unity in the Bible. We have, we have so many ways and substitutes for ways that, that we think we should be unified. All our opinions and our ideas and our, our convictions, all our rituals, all our, our habits, the things that we're comfortable with, the things that we expect out of other people, all of our ideas. We have so many ways in which we would sometimes desire to be unified, but biblically speaking, biblical unity is reserved for this and glorifies God when it is the practical application of our experience as God, of God himself. As Paul says, the God who is one, which I will be explaining more of in a moment. Paul makes a declaration that the church is one because God is one. That is why we are one, is because God is one. And there are, are no substitutes for unity other than an experience of the God who is one. No substitutes for, for our unity and for our oneness. But just because there are no substitutes for this unity doesn't mean that we don't go ahead and create them anyway. <laughs> And all of our ideas and all of our habits and all of our expectations of, of, of other people, it's important to keep in perspective what is it that unifies us? Where is it that we find the capacity to be one? And that is an experience of God himself who is one. So if we fail in unity then it would appear that we have much to repent of because our failure is due to our substitutes for our unity. John Calvin wrote centuries ago, the church can't be anything other than one because God can never cease to be one. Let me take a moment to draw our attention to Paul's emphatic seven times over use of the word one. To remind us that the reality that God is one is grounds for tremendous awe. And it is for that awe that God gathers us, just as he did Israel in the wilderness, as read from Deuteronomy chapter 6 earlier, as, as God took his people out of Israel, he delivered them, and they're in the wilderness, and they're prepared to go that all God had promised for them. And God has much promised for us as well, much in his will and in his heart for us as well. But overall, this is what God wanted Israel to understand, a proclamation in their midst that I, the Lord, your God, am one. He declared to Israel over and over and over again, I, the Lord your God, am one. And it is, it is by you being gathered into the presence of myself who is one, the, the one Lord, the one God, that you will then be my witnesses and my people in this world. What does it mean that God is one? God is one is not a contradiction of the Trinity, which affirms just one God, 
but it is a declaration of the absolute uniqueness and singularity of God. God is one. There is no other. He is the living God and there is none beside him. And our primary calling, of which the Apostle Paul says we are to walk worthy of, our, our calling isn't to be one. Our calling is to be the people of God, gathered into his presence, to be called sons and daughters of the God who is one, living in awe of that God. And so Paul says, walk worthy of your calling, he says. Understand your calling. Grasp your calling. The Lord is one. It is that one God that has gathered you of all people in the nations of, of, of the earth, gathered you to be a unique royal priesthood into his presence, to stand in awe of him and walk worthy of that calling. That is our calling, which Paul here says we are to walk worthy of. Awe never fails to produce humility. It doesn't mean that we're never without humility. It just means we know when we are without humility, we know the reason why. Because awe never fails to produce humility in God's people. And humility is our greatest need. Awe is God's gracious gift. Verse 6 is an amazing declaration of what God is like. One God, one Father, who is over all, through all, and in all. If you love prepositions, that, that's, that's a verse for you. Over all, through all, and in all. That's a showstopper for me. I'm reading that. It, that stops me dead in my tracks. I can't go any further. Like, like Balaam's donkey. There's, just, there's, something, there's something in my presence that stops me in my tracks. I, I, I can't go any further because there is something in my presence that, that is beyond my ability to comprehend. He is over all, through all, and in all. Lord, forgive us when we reduce you to something within our comprehension. You don't expect us always, I hope, to say things that you can understand about God. You expect us to say things that are true about God. And what is true about God is beyond our comprehension. So we declare the truth about God, not f always with full understanding, but with the expectation that the God that who is beyond our comprehension would nurture awe in us. What else can be over all, through all, and in all? That is what makes God one. If there were anything else in any sphere that was not done in and through God, then God would not be one because then God, there would be something like him also doing those things over, through, and in. <laughs> but there isn't anything else. It is over all, through all, and in all. In fact, it's beyond our comprehension that there is something that is over all, through all, and in all. 
But that is what God's oneness is. In his absolute uniqueness and singularity. It means that God is without comparables. He said to Israel, don't, there's a reason why they were called out from amongst the gods of the nations. Because the Lord thy God is one. He's without comparables. You know what the word comparables means? If you've ever bought or sold real estate, you know what the word comparables mean. <laughs> God is without comparables because he is absolutely unique. There is nothing else like him. And that is something that is beyond our comprehension because we are, we are so small in our, our experience. We're, we're so limited in our, our creatureliness to grasp something about the Creator who is over all, through all, and in all. Our, our world is completely made up of comparables. <laughs> it begins the time that we're born. Well, that one's chubby, and that one's not chubby. Well, that one's really cute, and that one's not so cute. And our, our life is immersed in comparables. Even as, as adults, we still we, we, we live in the world of comparableness. And to think of something that has never known comparableness is beyond our ability to comprehend. That is what it means when, when God is one. I can't do anything... In this world, whether it be anything, any human activity that I, that I pick up, guess what? It's comparable. And somebody's doing it better than I am and doing a better job of it than I am. That's just the world I live in as a creature. That, that's, that's the world, the reality that I comprehend. And God, with the words, the Lord thy God is one. All through the scriptures, the prophet Isaiah says to the people, to whom will you compare me? The prophet Jeremiah says, I, the Lord your God, fill heaven and earth. In other words, there isn't room for, for any other. There, there's nothing else there in heaven and earth. I fill heaven and earth because there's no comparable. In fact, one of the greatest spiritual disciplines we have as Christians is to not be governed by our comparables, but to be brought into the presence of the one who has no comparables and find our identity there, find our strength there, find our worth there, find our, our healing of all of that we need in the presence of such, such omnipotent greatness. The Lord thy God is one. It is an amazing thing. Andrew began the service by reading from Revelation chapter 1, and I believe that through the Apostle John, this is the idea that God wanted the churches in Revelation to understand about God, is that he is one. There is there's nothing to compare him in the heavens and, and all of the earth. And the vision that God shows when, when John says, and I turned to see the words, to see the words spoken to me. And the fantastic vision that the Apostle John sees then and delivers to the church. You know what the first words of God delivered to the church are through that vision? They're such words of graciousness and kindness and mercy. They're not, because the churches were a mess, and, but the first words aren't, stop that. <laughs> What do you think you're doing? The first words 
are fear not. Fear not. Because before the, the church could ever be addressed and all of the things that they need to stop doing, they needed to be healed of their fears. And it's their anxiety, it's their insecurity and their fears that, that drove them into all of the foolishness in which they live and John addresses in the seven letters to the churches. But the graciousness of God to deal with their fears. And that is what the presence of God does. And that kindness of God to us is what produces the humility that is born in us, which is our path to unity. It struck me also in Revelation chapter 1, where it says that I behold, I am coming on the clouds, and all of the tribes of the earth will mourn. And it's a not so subtle reference, I think, to the tribes of Jacob. Israel, the tribes, of the, the proud tribes of Jacob, the sons and daughters of God, whose the Lord thy God was one. It says, and the tribes of the earth shall mourn. And in contrast to that in the book of Revelation, the bride is the one that will rejoice. The bride is the one who sees God as he is and has all of their, their fears conquered and rejoices in the coming of God. But the tribes mourn. And I thought, and as I read that, I thought, Lord, are we just a tribe? Are we just a tribe with all of our culture, all of our habits, all of our rituals, all of our opinions, all of our expectations of one another, all of the conversations we have, all of the, the ways in which we speak to one another? Does it reflect the humility that comes from awe? Or are we just a tribe? Will we mourn when you come? Or will we rejoice? In a sermon time this morning, you're going to follow a little bit of a different format and, and pattern. And we're going to stop for prayer. A prayer of, of confession, repentance, and calling upon God. And a psalm will come up on the screen and Pastor Andrew will lead us in prayer for just a few moments. Okay, please join us. Psalm 28, 26, pardon me, verse 8 says, O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that like Job, when he was confronted by a series of questions, a series of testing, Lord, that we would stand, we would sit silently before you in awe of who you are, Lord. It wasn't us who created anything, but your word tells us that by a word spoken, all things were created, put into motion. Lord, you didn't just create and walk away, yet you sustain things actively. Today, this very moment, you hold atoms and molecules in place. You also hang the stars and the galaxies in motion, and you hold it all in the palm of your hand. So who are we, Lord, to come before you with a charge or any kind of complaint against you, Lord? But I pray that we would simply be in awe of your glory, of your oneness, Lord, your creator, your sovereign over all things. Nothing we experience or live or see or have done to us 
takes place with outside, takes place outside of your allowing and your sovereign will and your decree. Lord, that brings us great comfort knowing that the God of the universe holds me in his hands. And no one shall come against us. Nothing shall afflict us or persecute us outside of what you say is allowed. And Lord, in that, help us to trust in you more. I pray that because you are wise, that you are one, that you're a God of peace, not a God of fear. Lord, that we too would seek those things. Would you grant us wisdom with our neighbors, with our friends, with our spouses, with our teachers, with our kids? Grant us wisdom, Lord, peace and gentleness. Because of who you are, Lord, not because we're great, but because you're great. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Paul's words make it very plain that oneness is not for us to create. It is for us to preserve. Notice what Paul says. He does not exhort them to be one. He declares that they are one. He says there's one church. Now maintain the unity. Nothing we can do can make us one. That's a significant thing to understand. That oneness isn't a creation of something that we do, something that we are, something that we create as a church, as an organization. We cannot make us one. God has already made us one. It is God that makes us one because he is one. That is our identity. And that is how God has called us to be his children. And so Paul does not say, you know, you really ought to be one. It's not, it's not an exhortation. It's a declaration that God, that we are one. I learned years ago that exhortation has to follow proclamation. I, I grew up in the church where it seemed like exhortation came first and you could get the proclamation if you did good enough at the exhortation. Do you know what I mean by that? It was always do this, do that, do that. And if you did it, then you could hear God's word say, I love you, you're forgiven. But it's actually exactly the other way around. Proclamation comes before exhortation. I love you. You're forgiven. Now walk in a manner worthy of one who is loved and one who is forgiven. So Paul does not say in exhortation, you really ought to be one. He declares them to be one. Such a, an exhortation to be one would be a crushing weight upon us because we have no resources to make us one. All of our words, all our ideas, all of our actions, we, we don't have the capacity to make us one people. We don't have the stuff to make us one. And so what a release it is of that weight, of that burden, when God simply declares us to be one. But then what Paul does say is to walk worthy of what you've already been given. 
He says, maintain the unity in the Spirit. Declaring us to be one. Our actions, our attitudes, our words can't create unity, but they must preserve the unity already given. How do we preserve unity? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of spirit in the bond of peace. That is how we preserve and maintain what God has given to us. We are in a season of vulnerability that we would not neglect to understand what it is that makes us one. That we would not neglect to understand what our real calling is, to be gathered as sons and daughters into the presence of the living God for awe. I understand the distinction between our calling and walking worthy of our calling, which is the exhortation to walk with humility, love, and kindness towards one another. To the church in Philadelphia, Revelation chapter 3, verse 12 says this, To the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar. Well, we have a lot to conquer as the church of Jesus Christ living in our days. We have a lot to conquer. To the church who conquers, I will make them a pillar in my temple. Will we conquer? How will we conquer? What will it look like to conquer? Significant questions for us to be asking. Do you feel safe in the church? As I said, we live in a time of vulnerability. And we are only safe in one another's presence when each of us as one are all safely in the awe of God. In other words, pride comes to us much more naturally than does humility. But when you are safe in my presence and when, when I am safe in your presence is when all of us are safely in the presence of God because that is where we're humbled. And if I am outside of the presence of God, if you are outside of the presence of God and not being humbled by that presence of the God who was one, then I'm not safe in your presence and you're not safe in my presence. Let me unmask myself. And tell you plainly what I am look what I look like as a person outside of Jesus Christ. When I am outside of awe, when I am outside of of grasping and, ex- and experiencing God himself. Let me tell you what I look like. <laughs> what I look like in the presence of imperfection because none of us are perfect. You're not perfect people. I'm not a perfect person. All of us walk and live in the presence of people who are imperfect. And you are not safe in my presence unless I am safely in the presence of God. Why? Because I have a good eye for the splinters in other people's eyes. 
but I have a real blindness for the log in my own eye. I watch what I eat and I'm thankful my organs are, are good at dealing with it. But it's the food, it, it's not the food, it's the words that defile me. As our Lord plainly says. It's the words that come out of my mouth that make me sick. When I am outside of the awe of God. So I'm going to read through some very practical verses that deals with one of the areas in our life where it is so important for us to deliver on humility and kindness towards one another. And it is in the realm of our speech, the way that we talk to one another, the way that we converse with one another, the things that we so casually and quickly throw out towards other people. And I'm going to read some Proverbs. This is a, a very significant personal discipline in my own life through this season that we've been going through. And I, and I realize upon reflection how some of my words should have been restrained, how some of my, my thoughts have been, uh, have been expressed in words that, that were not good <laughs> and were not right and people have not been safe in my presence. And they're so profound. Proverbs 20, verse, just listen to these as they, as they roll over you. I'm going to read a number of them. Proverbs 20, verse 3. Fools are always quarreling, but it is an honor to keep aloof from strife. 22.10. Drive out the scoffer and you will have peace. 10.19. Where words are many, transgression is not absent. 11.4, a gracious word is a tree of life, but a perverse word breaks the spirit. 29.11, a fool gives full vent to his anger. 17.23, even a fool is considered wise when they are silent. Whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. 13.3, 1727, a man of wisdom restrains his words. And whoever has understanding is even tempered. This has a lot to do with a reflection of how much we understand our calling and how much we experience the presence of God himself and our capacity to maintain the oneness that God has declared us to be. Even this week, I remember recalling this week reading an email that, that annoyed me. <laughs> and I didn't respond, and on reflection upon it, thinking, you know, there's wisdom in that. And it's teaching me the discipline of restraining my words long enough to ask some questions. It's a simple, practical discipline as we're engaging with one another. Instead of simply stating your opinion, ask some questions. Use your words to pray for people. Use your time to be hospitable to people. And may God grant us the ability to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Let's pray again. Psalm 37, verse 8. 
It says, refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. Join me in prayer. Lord, again, as we stand before you, I pray that in awe that we would know our place, that we would know our role, and that in humility we would approach our relationship to you, with you, with others, with those who are like us, with those who are not like us, even with those who think differently than we do, who believe different things than we do, who have different traditions and habits. And Help us, Lord, to be silent, that we would clothe ourselves in gentleness and in grace and in charity and hospitality for one another, knowing that what holds us together isn't the fact that we all are alike or we all have the same skin color or the same birthday or the same preferences, but, Lord, it's the fact that we are called your sons and daughters and that you are one. Help us, Lord, not to feel like we need to somehow earn that oneness or earn that unity, but, Lord, that we would live that out. I pray that we would be your sons and daughters who are marked by things like the fruits of the Spirit, or as Jesus tells us in John 13, that others would know that we are your children, that we are Christians by our love for each other. Help us, Lord, to love and to show that love to one another, that there would be unity among us in spite and even in the presence of our differences and our, the things that make us unique. Lord, help bind that unity tight. That bond of peace, Lord, among us would be strong. Pray against division, not in this church only, Lord, but against the collective church around the world. Lord, that in spite of differences of opinions amongst leadership and uh, brokenness that exists in leadership and even in staff and secrets that are kept, Lord, I pray that all of those things would be exposed, but that on the other side of that wouldn't be uh, discipline and, and division, but Lord, that it would bind your church together even tighter. Help us, Lord, in these things, I pray. Amen.